actually were trying to solve the problem of what to do with ships. And you said, why don't I look for a problem that doesn't have the privacy constraint on it and see whether I can solve that problem. Now and then, asteroids hit each other, but we only see them after the fact. The first time this ever happened is in 2010. Hubble was taking a deep space picture, and in the middle of the picture was a giant X because it was two asteroids that pounded into each other. Wow, and then bounced out. Yeah, and so they're like, and then they're going who knows where. They're not going where you thought they were going. Now where are they going? So I asked the question, I go, well, why don't you just check to see if they're going to hit each other? And then they just said to me, I don't think you understand. This is something called multibody orbit math, which means you use a lot of compute. It's an N squared problem. You'd need 10 million computer hours. And then I went, well, but why would you even try to solve it that way? Wouldn't Why wouldn't you just solve it this other way? So I, I told them about this other way, and they went, that could work. And I could see it in my head. I went, of course it would work. And we delivered to them a 25-year forward forecast of every asteroid getting close to every asteroid. And now for the first time, astronomers are able to look in space and watch two asteroids glaze each other. Yeah, if I save Earth, you're going to owe me. <laughs> Welcome to episode 247 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thanks for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. Today, I'm joined by our guest, Jeff Jonas, who's the phone, founder and CEO of Sensing, S-E-N-Z-I-N-G. Uh, this is basically sensing with a Z, right, uh, 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 Jeff? Indeed. Okay. Uh, Jeff is a longtime friend. Uh, we go back 15 years, uh, and uh, uh, he's been doing remarkable things with data that whole time. So this will be a fun interview. Uh, I'm glad he's here. Uh, for our news roundup, uh, David Chris, co-founder of Culper Partners, former assistant attorney general in charge of the National Security Division of Justice, Gus Hurwitz, uh, a professor of law at the University of Nebraska, Jamil Jaffer in studio at last, founder of the National Security Institute, adjunct professor at George Mason, and a hundred other things, Jamil. Uh, it's kind of, I don't know when you sleep. Well, not much, but uh, darn glad to be here. Thanks, it's, Stuart. It's a pleasure. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, host of today's program and operating on a four-hour sleep. Thank you, Burlington Airport. Uh, you would think they would be better at dealing with uh, below zero cold than they are. Let's start, uh, uh, David, Jamil, with something that falls right in your area of expertise, which is, uh, God help us, we're going to have another FISA debate all through 2019 because uh, of a sunset, or three sunsets, uh, uh, at the end of 2019. Uh, um, uh, Bobby Chesney had a nice write-up of, about what was uh, going away. Uh but this debate's going to be a little different, I think, uh, uh, than the last one. Um, uh, what do you see? I'll, I'll ask David to kick it off. David, uh, what do you think are the main issues are going to be this year? I think the main issue by a long shot is going to be the ongoing called detail record collection authority that was grafted into the FISA business records provision by the USA Patriot Act of 2015. Just to start with a wider aperture on it, there are three provisions that are going to sunset at the end of this year. One is the business records provision. Two is the authority for roving wiretaps in traditional FISA electronic surveillance, where you can follow a target across multiple phones and even multiple providers. And three is the so-called lone wolf amendment that allows the targeting under traditional FISA of individual non-U.S. persons who are engaged in terrorism, even if they're not affiliated with a larger terrorism group. Again, of those three, I think it's really the first one concerning business records uh, that is going to raise the fuss. You know that, um, <clears throat> thanks to Edward Snowden, there was a lot of bulk collection of telephony and Internet metadata being done by the government first under unilateral executive authority and then under the auspices of the FISA court. When that was revealed, uh, you know, there was a big fuss. And the result was the USA Freedom Act of 2015, which prohibited bulk collection under FISA and some other provisions, but created in its place this very complicated system for the ongoing collection of telephony metadata or call detail records two hops out from a seed identifier. So under the old system, the government would suck up all the telephone records, and then it would do contact chaining across those records using its own 
algorithms in this huge pool of data. Under the new system in the Freedom Act, there was this more complex iterative functioning where it would send out a seed number and then the phone companies would respond and then there'd be a second level of querying and response and so forth. The big innovation was that NSA wasn't holding all the data, but the price of that was a very complicated system and it failed catastrophically last summer, causing NSA to just give up and delete all the data that it had received since the Freedom Act under that new program. So sensing, sensing um, weakness or maybe a, uh, a collection program that uh, wasn't valued by the apparent beneficiaries, a lot of people are saying, well, why don't we just get rid of it? Yeah, and I think that's a real question. Whether the executive branch in this environment in particular is going to conclude that it's worth the fight to seek renewal or whether they will just throw up their hands and say, you know, the juice is not worth the squeeze here. Let's let it go. It's a lesson in how sometimes, you know, the incredible legal and operational complexity of these programs can become a factor and the perfect could be the enemy of the good. Jamil? Yeah, no, I think David is exactly right that the, that the thing that's going to be most focused on here is this, is the uh, call data records collection. I think the interesting environment that we walk ourselves into is the sort of Donald Trump, uh, the FBI was surveilling or the NSA was surveilling my campaign. Um, I'm concerned about that. Uh, you saw during the 702 fight, uh, the administration sort of all together saying we want 702 renewed. And then the president the last been tweeting, you know, based, I think, on a Fox News report that maybe it ought not be renewed. Um, that conversation is likely to take place in the context of a different collection, the call data records collection, that wasn't really implicated by the uh, questions around the campaign and the like, but is a FISA issue and might get caught up in that. And it wouldn't be surprising if, um, unlike the prior two administrations, the administration doesn't fight particularly hard to renew. That would be troubling given all of what the, the Bush administration said about this being an important or early warning program and what the Obama administration did to keep this program alive, albeit maybe hamstrung by the USA Freedom Act. And the pressure on in Congress from both uh, Republic Democrats who never liked the program and Republicans who are increasingly becoming libertarian on these questions, a la Ted Cruz and Mike Lee, and that increasing movement in the House, too, and that shift of the Republican Party. And so for people who think this is an important program, which I would put myself in the camp of, um, even post sort of hamstringing of it by the by Congress and the USA Freedom Act, um, there's a real chance this program goes out the door and then – you know, we'll all be left wondering, well, what happened? You know, why do we reduce our authorities at a time when the terrorist threat remains high? Not yeah. saying everyone's, everyone's view that we beat ISIS. Yeah. Uh, so I, I, I agree with, I, I don't think that the administration's going to give up on, uh, uh, this, uh, uh, though I, I wouldn't be surprised if at the last minute there were a tweet that came from nowhere that, that appeared to give up on it. That is a real risk, just as it happened last time. Uh, I am hearing from a lot of people on the Hill that, uh, uh they're getting, pushback on FISA from completely unexpected directions, people who say, uh, oh, yeah, I remember that. That's the thing that uh, Obama used to uh, spy on Trump. That thing. Exactly. And you'll have a lot of folks in the House, some of the newly elected folks uh, currently there, and some of the folks who were elected over the last four, five, eight, six years. Um, and then you've got an increasing movement in the Senate in that direction, too. And so with the president out there, you know, sort of hearing it on Fox News, the president himself putting it out there, uh, Devin Nunez as the ranking member of the House Intelligence Committee, uh, there may be a perfect storm of, of a challenge for this program. Um, and as strong as NSA might feel about it, given the operational challenges they've faced, it's going to be uphill road. And the real problem is there are very few voices out there saying, hey, 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 this is a really important program for national security, warning, you know, danger Will Robinson. So my – Hope for salvaging this is something that happened in the 215 debate. Uh, at the end of the day, there was a lot of grumbling about it. I, uh, uh, and the issue du jour was unmasking and, uh, to get the votes of people, uh, you know, sort of the Trumpista right, uh, they came up with a set of rules that restricted unmasking and imposed some civil liberties uh, constraints. Now, pretty much the constraints that already have been imposed uh, um, administratively, but still, I think it, it, it was a way of respecting a narrative that obviously was important to the, the Trumpist uh, uh, right. I think you could do that again if you thought carefully about it. There are plenty of ways to ask 
if we were worried not about oppression of some minority viewpoint, but of raw partisan misuse of FISA, uh, and that is the narrative we're dealing with now that the, that the Obama administration during the campaign and after uh, was taking nas- a national security concern and using it for um, partisan advantage. If you ask the question, well, that's a new problem. That's not a problem that we addressed in the 70s. We couldn't imagine it. Now we can. What kinds of changes should we make in FISA that will make that harder to pull off? Yeah, I think we could. you could come up with something. But it's... Uh, uh, it's incumbent, especially uh, for those of us on the right, to to start thinking about that. Agree, one hundred percent. Let's move on to uh, a decision that is making news, although God knows why. Uh, well, I know why, uh, uh, but it's not the quality of the decision. Uh, uh, a decision allegedly by a judge out of the uh, 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 Northern California district uh, saying that uh, passcode and biometric uh, uh, phone access should be treated the same way for Fourth and Fifth Amendment uh, purposes uh, and refusing to grant a uh, warrant that would have allowed uh, um, the automatic collection of biometrics to open phones. Uh, 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 Jamil, uh, can you give us a little bit more about the decision? Yeah, well, I mean, the decision is interesting because um, it has all sorts of aspects to it, uh, starting right at the jump that might be wrong um, if any sort of regular district judge were to look at it or uh, if it were ultimately made the Court of Appeals, the district judge ultimately adopted the magistrate judge's recommendation. Um, and, and on a warrant, obviously, he's denied it, but, you know, they can always go to the, go to the district judge for, for the warrant. Um, the Challenge here is one, um, what does the Fifth Amendment have to do with any of this when you're looking at a warrant, right? Why are we looking right. at the Fifth Amendment's right to self-incrimination or right against self-incrimination? Um, and the judge says, well, look, I mean, it would, it might be manifestly unfair of me if I were to grant the warrant and then later on, uh, they were to challenge the, 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 um, the introduction of the evidence were challenged because it's so hard to win when you challenge, uh, the introduction of evidence or, or you file a suppression motion. Well, of course, that is, how, in fact, we do Fourth Amendment law. We don't sort of deal with all that up front. We figure out, is there probable cause? Is it based on, 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 it doesn't have particularity and all the other requirements of the Fourth Amendment? And then we move on. Well, and, and they're hard. <laughs> Suppression motions are hard to win because you're suppressing actual valuable evidence about the person what the judge here did was suppress even the collection of that evidence you don't even know what she suppressed exactly and then she also looks at this question of whether there was probable cause and conflates probable cause with particularity right do you have a well enough described uh application as to who's being searched and what's being searched so well if you if you're not describing that in a particular manner well there's no probable cause those are typically thought of in most courts as segregable inquiries uh she conflates the two uh, and then there's a range of other problems ultimately culminating in this question of whether uh, facial recognition or thumbprints are the same as passcodes and passwords. There's a debate, I think, in academia, maybe maybe it's just a debate with me, uh, whether the question whether you can actually get somebody to give their password up is appropriate or not, whether that is a Fifth Amendment problem. Is, is forcing somebody to give their password up, forcing them to testify against themselves? I think the answer to that is no. I recognize that a lot of folks disagree with me, including most judges. Yeah, I, I, I'm with you. I, yeah. it, it is not testimonial, and you could certainly solve it by saying, "Fine, we will not tell the jury that it what you your gave us the is, password, right. or you gave it to us." Right. But then, you know, the question, even if you assume that those judges are right and you and I are wrong, right? The question of, well, is a thumbprint the same as a facial recognition on your phone the same as as a password? Is it something in your mind? No, it's actually something you are. As we know, two-factor authentication yeah. is is about something you know and something you are. And we typically think of those things as separate. Why would we conflate the two for Fifth Amendment or Fourth Amendment purposes? Um, it's not and, clear you and, should. And, and this this opinion does not explain it. Uh, Gus, exactly. uh, can can you salvage this opinion? No. Uh, so there, there's nothing good here. Uh, and I, I want to uh, actually uh, start uh, with probably an imprudent uh, rant. Uh, about this opinion, and as far as the media is concerned, uh, this magistrate judge's opinion order is the same as the Supreme Court opinion. Uh, it's reported in the same uh, airy sort of way without any uh, uh, distinction between the two, um, which is really frustrating, and I've been thinking a lot about this over the last, uh, especially the last weekend or so, uh, with, uh, this is the, the thing I shouldn't uh, touch on, uh, uh, the Covington Catholic situation and thinking about deep fakes and 
the role of the media in spreading this sort of information that's hard to sort through for the public. The media has to do a better job with this stuff and its reporting of this stuff. Um, so th this uh, uh, magistrate judge's uh, order is a break from uh, the general trend in these cases. Um, I'll say there is some uh, defendability, perhaps, on the Fourth Amendment side. Um, I haven't gotten into uh, the details of uh, uh, what was uh, being requested um, on the part of law enforcement here enough, but it reads, the order uh, reads as though um, law enforcement was requesting uh, uh, permission to collect every device from uh, every person who was uh, at the same event as the actual suspects uh, subject to the order and then require every person there to unlock every device. So that might be overbroad, but as Jamil said, we've got severability. We should have looked at this uh, in finer grain detail. The Fifth Amendment issues, are, it's just an absolute mess. Um, and the most interesting thing, I think, about uh, how this mess uh, uh, starts up, first, uh, um, the general recent trend, I would say, at the circuit courts um, has been to uh, allow these sort of uh, uh, challenges to survive Fifth Amendment scrutiny and, in fact, as Jamil says, um, to uh, allow disclosure of passwords uh, as not violating the Fifth Amendment testimonial uh, privilege. Um, but how does this um, magistrate judge reach the conclusion that she does? Well, Carpenter. She says the uh, Supreme Court in Carpenter says, now she doesn't say for the purpose of the Fourth Amendment inquiry, she just says generally Court should make rules that uh, uh, embrace the and uh, uh, update the law to address the technological complexities of the day. That's just uh, reading Carpenter's license for judges to make whatever willy-nilly law they want. Uh, it's really messy. It's a very dangerous reading of Carpenter and demonstrates some of the problems uh, that we like they're going to see uh, in coming years as courts struggle with and try and figure out what Carpenter means. So um, if, if it, it, you know, one of the things that occurs to me, maybe this is uh, um, the fact that I've been around too long, uh, but I remember when um, magistrate judges were magistrates and, and everybody knew that they, um, were totally subordinate to the district court and did what the district court didn't have time to do. Uh, and you shouldn't treat their decisions too seriously because any of them could be reviewed and overturned by any district judge, uh, who said, you're not really saving me work. You're creating it. Uh, um, and then Congress in 1991 said, why don't we, in, I'm sure in response to lots of lobbying, from the magistrates said, why don't we call them magistrate judges? Then we won't have to pay them anymore, but they'll feel better about themselves. Uh, 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 but this is so stupid and the coverage of it is so naive that it really uh, raises the question whether we should just take that back and, and send them back to being magistrates, which they were for, what, 200 years? Yeah, I, I think that uh, that's a very wise idea uh, as an outcome of this case. I, the, the judge shows, uh, the, the magistrate uh, judge shows um, no recognition of the scope of this opinion. Uh, the um, biometrics being collected here are indistinguishable from other sorts of routine biometric collection, fingerprints and DNA, uh, for instance. Um, and th this is uh, uh, the sort of opinion and the sort of reasoning that Carpenter cannot mean. Uh, the court should be uh, engaging in and the conclusions they should be reaching. All right. Well, we just I want to uh, try to move quickly through what the stories that remain. The SEC, um, the insecurity of Edgar is producing a whole host of new forms of uh, uh, front running uh, uh, insider trading. Uh, and I uh, the, the, the people who did the front running and who uh, got access to uh, early access to people's uh, filings uh, are all going to go to jail, it looks like, because the SEC is pretty good at catching them when they trade even if it can't catch them in its system. But I really I if if they were if Edgar were run by a private entity, uh how many fines would it have attracted as a as a result of its inability to keep this stuff secure? Gus? It depends on who's doing the fining. So uh, <laughs> clearly uh, the FTC would uh, try and come down hard uh, on uh, uh, the SEC in this case. Um, the silver lining, I think, in this case is um, 
in the uh, last couple of years, the SEC has, I think, become better in how it thinks about um, cybersecurity. It's uh, less focused on, did something bad happen? Well, we're going to find you. Uh, they increasingly recognize that they should be focusing on, are you guys trying to do security? Do you have a compliance program? Do you have a training program in place if you do? Okay, that's good. Um, and uh, uh, that the FTC hasn't quite caught up to there. Um, hopefully that's the direction that they're going. But uh, yeah, this demonstrates uh, uh, a whole lot of the government's own uh, cybersecurity uh, failings. It demonstrates, as you say, Stuart, uh, the SEC is good at finding the bad actors here and uh, going after them after the fact. Um, and instead of punishing the firms uh, in the uh, private sector context who are trying to do security well uh, and just can't accomplish that Sisyphean task, we shouldn't punish those firms. We should help them out uh, with uh, going after the uh, bad actors um, uh, where we can. The other really remarkable thing about this case, uh, these guys had access to um, uh, advanced filings of a relatively small number of companies, actually, and they were able to make about $4 million off of it. That number is just mind-bogglingly small to me. Yeah, I, I I thought that too. On the other hand, they often had data had access only ten minutes before the data went live, um, so you, you there's only so much uh, trading you can do without realizing that you're giving away uh, uh, your your insider information. So that maybe that's why they couldn't only make four million bucks out of it. So let me, let's let's keep moving on. I will say that when I uh, pointed out that the SEC probably would have been fined had it not been that the, was the SEC's uh, mistakes here, or at least their system. Uh, uh, Saad Gul, who uh, is a faithful uh, uh, listener, says uh, uh, in a response to my tweet, uh, well, Stuart, it's good to be king. Jamil? No, I mean, I think it's exactly right. I mean, you know, it's $4 million over six months, uh, to be clear. And, uh, you know, what's interesting about this is you've got uh, hackers in Russia, hackers in Ukraine, and hackers in L.A. I mean, I, I don't know what's going on here, but uh, the L.A. connection is actually my hometown. Um, you know, and the other thing I think that's interesting is these were test filings. So why they had sensitive data, why these companies were putting in their, in their sort of pre-filing, test filing, they're actually using the real data. I mean, that's the yeah. moronic play here. So – Somebody, else, I mean, if you're going to be finding anybody, these companies are not the smartest, sharpest knives in the drawer either. Yes, although I, I have to say, you know, if you're, if you want to know that the thing you want to put up can be put up, there. that's what you want to test. If you, if, if, if you, if you tested with some Something dummy else. data, that dummy data would end up being released one time out of a hundred. Or it might work, and then your actual file doesn't work, and then you're then you're up a creek. So <laughs> exactly. It's fair exactly. Point. It's okay. Fair point. So uh, uh, very quickly, uh, um, David uh, uh, DOJ's OLC flipped uh, on a pretty recent decision about gambling uh, uh, when uh, uh, whether the wire fraud act uh, uh, or the uh, the uh, the act making it uh, criminal to engage in support for uh, gambling applied only to sports gambling or to all uh, online gambling uh, that decision uh, limiting it to uh, online sports gambling is only a 2011 decision, um, and now the with the new administration, um, they've rescinded the decision. How unusual is that? Is this uh, uh, is this a big deal? It's pretty unusual. Uh, OLC does not often reverse itself so quickly, but it's certainly not unprecedented for OLC to do so. Um, and this. The technical side of this is uh, is exquisitely painful to review, but there are basically two clauses in this law, the first of which applies to wire communications in support of bets or wagers on any sporting event or contest, and the second clause of which just refers to bets and wagers without reference to sporting event or contests. And as you say, in 2010 or 11, OLC read both clauses as being limited to sporting events and contests. And now OLC has changed its mind. The reason that the change of mind really gets any media attention at all is because it is to the benefit of casino gamblers who are interested in restricting online gambling through the expansion of this criminal law, one of whom is Sheldon Adelson, who has given, I guess, a whole bunch of money to the Republican Party. And so the news angle on this has all been about whether DOJ or OLC or the criminal division are sort of in the tank. 
uh, and doing the bidding of these uh, big Republican donors. This is the uh, phenom- This is the phenomenon uh, known as the uh, bootlegger Baptist uh, coalition, uh, uh, yes. where the bootleggers and the Baptists want to ban uh, uh, sales of alcohol, uh, uh, and nobody else does. Uh, but they they make common cause in order to uh, uh, to keep uh, uh, their illegal franchise going if they're the bootleggers, or yeah. in the hopes of uh, improving the morals so, morals of the populace if they're Baptist. It's kind of a big tent theory, uh, you know, but I don't, <laughs> I mean, sort of riffing off what Gus said earlier about the media, I mean, I, I think the reporting on this has been somewhat more careful than some other reporting about jumping to conclusions. One can note the correspondence between the interests of large donors and the unusual event of a an, of a OLC opinion changing course, but I'm not aware of any direct evidence uh, of, of any real connection there. And, and having gone through the 22-ish page, 23-page OLC opinion, I, I would just say that, um, you know, before one would make such an allegation in a serious fashion, you know, there would be an obligation to wade through the statutory analysis. I think that'll probably cut down on anybody uh, expressing a view if that standard is applied. I believe there are currently at least 10 interns at BuzzFeed looking for Vladimir Putin's interests in online gambling uh, uh, opportunities. Uh, uh, there's a... <laughs> Okay, uh, uh, why don't we move on? Uh, this was uh, uh, terrific to our interview with Jeff Jonas, uh, founder and CEO of Sensing and acclaimed wizard of big data. Uh, he really is. He was a data scientist before data science was cool. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, Jeff, why don't you talk briefly about uh, uh, how we got to know each other, what you had been doing before that, and then uh, uh, where we first bumped into each other, because I think it'll give people a feel for both your data science credentials and your interest in public policy. Well, it's really, first I'll just say it's really great to see you. It's been a little while. I think the last time we saw each other, I was wearing a corset. Yes, that's right. That's right. Uh, uh, you were you were in pain. Can you unsee that? <laughs> I believe that we first met on at the Markle Foundation on the National Security Task Force in the wake of nine eleven. And and what could we do uh, to uh, find the kinds of people who carried out the nine eleven attacks? Yeah, and do it in a way that had a lot of uh, you know privacy and civil liberty protections. It was uh, my first work in policy, really, and that was uh, a a great memory. And those are great, great years. I was uh, lots of meetings and lots of reports. And I remember seeing output that, uh, you know, with some of my uh, few of my words in yeah. presidential orders. So I'm like, wow, I've actually done something with my life. Yeah, no, you I, I, you, you had a big Im- impact on it. You brought to uh, the task um, your experience in Las Vegas finding card counters. So, uh, if you've seen the movie 21, uh, it was about card counters and the card counters, uh, are usually easily, easy to spot because they, uh, make tiny bets until they realize the cards are hot and then they start making very big bets. Uh, but if you see that pattern, you throw them out if you're a casino. Uh, the way these MIT guys overcame that is they had one person who just kept making uh, small bets, no matter what was coming up in the cards, but they would signal another guy who was acting like a drunk, who didn't have any idea what his money was worth, wandering from table to table, dumping large sums uh, on the table, who would come over and start dumping large sums as soon as the cards got hot. And only if you knew that those two people were in cahoots could you um, realize that card counting was going on. And uh, in fact, if you watch the movie, they do figure that out. And as a practical matter, they were using your software to do it. Uh, that's true. We did build that software uh, that's used today probably by half the casinos in the world to help find card counters. But it wasn't just that. It turned out there was some additional data. Uh, uh, there's a there's a few things you have to do if you want to use data to catch bad guys. There's only two ways to do it, and one of those ways is you have to have some data they don't know you have. Ah, okay. If they know you have cameras on three streets, they'll just take the fourth street. Right. And it was on that principle that I stumbled into uh, while working on this project. I, I stumbled into somebody gifted to me the MIT card count teams 
business plan, how they're going to raise money, how are they going to train, recruit, how they're going to make sure they weren't penetrated, how oh they were going to move money. So I, it I really have, was a, a counter-espionage operation. Well, yes, maybe. <laughs> I still have a copy of that plan, by the way. <laughs> um, and I read this plan uh, slowly, sentence by sentence, thinking if I wrote this plan, I was the prime mover behind it, what would I be thinking? And I got to the point in the plan where it said that they were going to recruit primarily from the MIT engineering department. And so I got the wise idea of well, why not just get the why not just get the yearbooks? Which, if anybody was going to digitize their yearbooks in the nineties, was going to be MIT <laughs> themselves, exactly <laughs> digitizing their own year. But we hoarded the paper yearbooks uh, and then added fat fingered in the the engineering department. And not that they're card counters, but if you have somebody that is acting like a drunk and only playing big bets, right? Uh, and they happen to also be in the engineering department. It doesn't even mean they're bad. But if you're trying to f- narrow your focus, right? what a great place to start. But by the way, that was not in the movie. Uh, the movie was primarily theater. Yes. But it was not either in the book. And most of the people on the MIT card count team don't know that because they think it was the facial recognition that we implemented in 96, ah, which is just okay. a facade. So – Obviously, if what you're trying to do is to find hidden connections among people who are out to cause you harm, uh, the application of that to terrorists who are vanishingly small as a percentage of the population but who can do overwhelming damage, uh, the ability to spot connections among the 19 terrorists would have been enormously valuable. Uh, uh, and so it was obvious that uh, what you had done in Las Vegas had – implications for the counterterrorism problem. True. And when you talk about trying to do that, find those connections without violating privacy while respecting privacy, what kinds of things did uh, uh, you suggest the government ought to be doing? You know, this is one of the tricky things is everybody agrees on on both sides, the government and the privacy community, that false positives are bad because you're tapping people on the shoulder uh, unfairly. Mm-hmm. That's where I think there's the biggest agreement. Yeah, because redu- from the, gov- the government's point of view, it's a complete waste of their resources to, to right. go out and stop innocent people. Yeah. On the other end, it's tough because – you can only make sense of the data you have. You're, you're, if you're trying to figure out where where to focus your finite resources, uh-huh. say to find a bad guy, um, you need enough data points so that you can not have a lot of false positives. It's like you need more puzzle pieces to get a richer picture. Right. If you announce every single puzzle piece you have, clever bad guys. This is one of my my two no, principles. They, they just they 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 do the screen on themselves and they say, okay, you're not going on this operation. We're going to send somebody who doesn't uh, flag under these uh, uh, tests. Yeah, exactly. So there's so there's two ways to catch these catch really clever bad people. One is to have data they don't know you have, and that's it's difficult. How do you do that if you're a government and you need to be transparent in the kind of data you're collecting? And the other one is maybe your adversaries know all the data you have. Maybe because of the Snowden breach, uh, they, they, they can really imagine all more data about what you have. Maybe they've even exaggerated it in their head and they, they imagine you have more data than you really have. Right. Then the only way to catch them is you have to be able to perform compute on the data in a way that they cannot fathom. Ah. Okay. And, and an example that? would be they know you have a video camera in the parking lot, but they never got the memo that there's something called license plate readers. Right. You see? So they stay in the car. They never get out of the car. They can't. Nobody can see their face. But uh, it doesn't matter because you're reading their license. But they plate. they don't know that that's computable. Yes. They know you have a video, mm-hmm. but they don't know it's computable that there's a plate. Mm-hmm. So when you think about catching clever bad people, you have to think about those two vectors, and then how to square that is is the tricky part. And that's takes thought. Plus the process. So what sensing does, it, it, I, what I, I'm struck by is the continuity in your career uh, uh, because so much of what you've been doing since the Las Vegas days is saying uh, we can find connections, we can identify people and say this is this person and they have all of these attributes uh, from piles of fairly random, not very well organized uh, uh, data. You did that in Las Vegas did that in the connection with the uh, counterterrorism, you're still doing it. Uh, you've got a project now on uh, 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 voter registration. I'm very proud of that project. Yeah. But just to be clear is we don't have data. We're not, we're not finding the connections. But organizations struggle with this. They've got 
piles of data and they don't realize it's the same person. Mm-hmm. And you're in your, if you're in healthcare, they think it's two, two patients, but it's really one patient. That's important to know. Um, you know, I go check into a hotel. They think I'm three. They have, they think I have three loyalty club, club cards. It's just me. Right. These are all what's called entity resolution problems. Duplicates in your phone. If you look in your phone and see duplicates, that's an entity resolution problem. Thousands. Marketing list. When it's got a bunch of duplicates in there, they they think I'm three, uh, some company's marketing to me and I'm already their customer. That just means they haven't been able to match me. So the purpose of sensing is to take what's been difficult, which is this entity resolution. And and historically, it's only been, the really good stuff is millions of dollars and it's really only available to the elite. I'm just democratizing that. I'm letting the whole world have it. Yeah, so you've been releasing this on a kind of freemium basis. That is to say, the the code is free for people who want to use it to do entity resolution. I'm going to ask you a question about that in a second. And then obviously, if if the amount of data gets really large, People will pay for uh, uh, using the data to uh, using the code to process the data. So let me ask you a question, uh, very personal. I've got all these people in my Outlook database who have moved on to other jobs. I also have a fair amount of it out of LinkedIn, which is usually much more up to date because people want to put their up to date contact mm-hmm. information in there so that they can be contacted about their next job. Um, could I just take the code and use it to go through Outlook and uh, uh, whatever I've downloaded from uh, uh, LinkedIn to both entity resolve and get rid of the old data? You can download your Outlook. Uh, you can export your Outlook to CSV, mm-hmm. which just means they're like sure. a common delimited file. Uh, you can do that with uh, LinkedIn as well. Mm-hmm. Until about six months ago, uh, LinkedIn, that would include the email address. Which is a really great uh, hint. Yes. Uh, now, unless people opt into sharing their email address, it doesn't export. And uh. I just retested mine in LinkedIn, by the way. And no one in my five, whatever five thousand friends have gone in there to opt in for yes, of share my. Not. Well, this email. is presumably this is LinkedIn basically trying to start their walled garden uh, effect to say this data is really valuable and we're going to make it hard. By claiming that it's a privacy problem, uh, uh, to share the, uh, maybe, the data. Yeah, huh? Like huh? Was it, they were, were they, was it privacy first or hoarding first? Yeah. But you could sell that one either way. But what I do is I download, um, all my uh, Outlook. I download my Salesforce. Yeah. Right, to CSV. Then I go, uh, uh, um, export everybody that is logged into my newsletter, uh, ask for my newsletter. And then I have my uh, Halloween party uh, mailing list. I, I entity resolve that together, and then I can t- make a single search and find that person across all my channels without having to go to each one. Right. And, and that's less than 10,000 records, and that's just free for everybody. Oh, that's that's great. So tell me about the um, – because I think this will give people a feel for uh, how it works. Tell me what you're doing on voter registration. Oh, we're and, so and, proud and, of this and, project. And, and, and I have to say <clears throat> this strikes me as – um, a landmine filled path uh, that sooner or later you're going to make Republicans or Democrats angry yeah, uh, uh, because you've tripped over one or another of their shibboleths. Well, half the country's running on it now, both uh, blue and red states. So I think we're, I hate to claim a um, victory there, but a lot of work was done with this. It was originally um, um, primed with Pew Charitable Trust. And, um, and so, Here's the goal of the system is to improve the quality of the election rolls. Mm-hmm. And one of the first problems you have in the election rolls is people move and they forget to unregister. Yeah, because why, why bother? Like, who would – well, and you – like, I don't know. Who's going to remind you? Yeah. Huh? Yeah, exactly. Right. So you live in Colorado. You moved to Oregon and you forgot to unregister. So now the the rolls in Colorado, you know, are bigger than male population maybe. Right. Or you die and you forget to unregister. Well, that would be – yes. <laughs> well, shame on them. We need to go after them and their families. Okay. I, I kid. So what happens in this system, it's run by a nonprofit called Eric and they, uh, states on board with them and they, they take their voter registration data and the DMV data from each state. And if you can see that the voter has turned up in Oregon, yet they're still registered in Colorado, then they send a, a, uh, uh, called a recommendation to Colorado that says you might want to verify with your voter that they still want to be registered. By the way, they, they might still need to be or want to be registered because they own property mm-hmm. you know, for state elections. So then they reach out and actually contact the voter. 
This is beautiful because it creates a very loud feedback loop. Like if you're contacting people saying, hey, we think you moved. We think maybe you should be off the roll. Do you want to be on or off the roll? And you're wrong. That's a loud event. Right. The, the second thing is when you show up in Oregon, if you're in the DMV file, but you're not in the voter registration file, then it's a chance for the Oregon election officials to reach to, out to, to that say, person. say, do you want to register? Yeah. So it really works on both sides of the equation and hence why it's um, – it's, it's, Why um, it might not set off either side too much because you're saying we want everybody registered but only once and only properly in the place that they actually reside. Yeah. And it's anyways, where my whole uh, team, everybody's really proud of this. It originally launched in 2012 with five, four or five states. It's got 24 states now plus Washington, D.C., and it's just working across the country. So let me ask you the Chris Kobach question. Uh, uh, there is um, – you know, it's been tweeted by the president that uh, large numbers of people who are here who are not citizens uh, may have voted. That they, And there's some evidence, but it's pretty – modest. Uh, um, you could answer that question. Uh, well, I mean, I couldn't. Uh, well, that, sorry. The, 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 the secretaries of state could answer that question if they just asked DHS for access to the database of people who had um, visas to be in the United States but weren't citizens. If you, you could run entity resolution, and mm-hmm. that just means matching identity data. Uh, if you had, if it was legal and within right. on policy to have both data sets, you could run that and you could see where there was overlap. Yeah. Just like a, they also load the deceased person's file where you have name and date of birth and zip code. And So Chris Kobach's question that, that he set up this whole process that is more or less collapsed now uh, uh, to answer, he probably could answer it today uh, if uh, the USCIS, which keeps the uh, the visa records, uh, simply said, uh, sure, you can, you can resolve that. Now, to exchange this information, to protect the privacy, you've been hashing the data haven't you yeah yeah it's um in what uh, about a, over over a decade ago i invented this method to do match identity records mm-hmm. but hashing uh the fields first so hashing uh the name and the driver's license and the date of birth in the voter registration it turns out you only have to hash the driver's license social and date of birth you don't have to hash the name and address because those are public record right okay and the goal of it, by the way, there's lots of ways to attack these hashing schemes. Well, especially if you can, if you can find the, the, the social security number for a large number of people and you have their name and address, they, you can go back and reconstruct the, uh, the hash key, uh, I assume, and say, okay, so now we know how they hashed all of these records. Well, there's a bit, it's, I would say it's a bit more work than that to try to hack through. Because, because you would, you would, you would we, hash these, with, these with things changing. called secret keys that, right. um, and then you run a couple of them and you have to steal two secrets from two places. Mm-hmm. There's a tax. But the point is it's 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 better than clear text, meaning text right. everyone can see. And it just reduces the risk of unintended disclosure, just yes. raises the bar. And you could raise it higher with more complexity. But that system runs that way. So if somebody were to just outright steal their database that the Eric organization runs, it's got name and address as public record and a bunch of stuff that would be really, really hard to turn into real data. And – one of the I, I I have been as I followed your career I I've been wondering uh, and you were a fellow at IBM which is a very proud big of that deal it's, yeah I, yeah that's probably one of the most unexpected things about my journey five Nobel uh, prize winners were your also colleagues. yeah my yeah. peers yeah I'm like I'm the one that didn't finish high school. I, you know, I, I got into nomad status where I've reduced everything. I owned 180 pounds, but I've saved, I have three framed things. Right. Yep. I live under a bed in, in my boat. But one of those framed things is my IBM fellow certificate. It's probably the single most prized thing. Yeah, it's very cool. That I have. It's yeah. very cool. Yeah. Uh, you can't will that. You can't pay for it. You can't will it. Yeah. Yeah. So you started your business selling. I mean, you, your, your first program was junior high, if I remember right. Yeah. I wrote so. a word processor for a computer. No one knows anymore called a pet Commodore. And my teacher went, well, that works pretty well. I had smoking pot all that damn summer. Um, I quit in 85 for the record. Right. But you know, he sold this thing to the Los Angeles school district and sent, and I got a check. Yeah. I mean, talk about getting yourself out of harm's way. Cause I was just being a bum. I'm like, man, you can do something you love and people send money. So I got serious, cleaned myself up. And then just um, really got dedicated to writing software. It's so fun. You can have a hobby and people send money. It's crazy. Yeah, yeah, no, this, this is how I felt about law. I said, God, you know, I, you, you just read and then you write down what you think and uh, it's all indoor work, you know. Uh, it, it was it was great. Uh, uh, so, yes, I, I felt the same way when I went to law school. Uh, um, 
If you were giving advice to somebody who was technically adept in high school, enthusiastic about this, would you say, but you still ought to go to college? Yeah, I, I, all my kids went to college. I would say go to college. But I would, at the same time, uh, say find as many practical problems and, and, uh, and apply yourself to them. Right. right. There's just so much to be learned by doing actual, you know, real things. But uh, I have certain gaps in my head because I didn't go through the normal education process. They're just, yeah. Yeah. So I, my, my bet gaps. is you think you have gaps. We all have gaps. You just know that you have them. <laughs> oh, yeah. I am so cautious. It's, it's, A, it's humbling. And B, I, I'm very careful about when somebody presents something to me that's a problem that's interesting. Uh-huh. I very instantly can either see my way through it yep. or not. Right. And therefore I just go, yeah, I actually can't help you with that. I don't have the, raw material to do that. So this is what uh, what's interesting I, uh, uh, and what I only realized recently about what you do is it's not just that you're really good at figuring out ways to, to resolve identity. It's that you find ways to simplify the problem so that computers can address it in a, uh, a way that matches intuition rather than just uh, brute forcing the solution. Maybe I would say computationally efficient. Because mm-hmm. you can brute force things with computers and a lot of people do, but it just doesn't scale. And um, and this is the this was the problem with finding, you know, uh, the, a few terrorists in uh, 30 million visitors. Uh, uh, you're never going to find everything about everybody. You have to start using uh, heuristics to uh, uh, figure out who are we looking for? At what point do we start di- diving deeper on a smaller number of people? Yeah, the more quickly you can get to a very small number of things to spend a lot of energy on, the better. Right. So this is, I mean, this really is what like CBP, which has 30 seconds to evaluate people uh, in the ordinary course, uh, does. They collect enough data to say who's coming, what do we know a little bit about them, their travel patterns, their uh, uh, their names, phone numbers. Uh, and if there's a hit, even a kind of modest hit that says there was a problem with this person, they say, well, okay, let's put them on a list of people, prioritize the list, and whoever comes up at the top of the list we're for sure going to talk to, and uh, in the middle of the list, uh, the likelihood that they're going to get talked to depends in part on how they do in that 30 seconds with the mm-hmm. uh, uh, the guy at the border. Uh, and that's basically saying we're going to have some rules of thumb that allow us to decide when we're going to dive deeper. And when they dive deep, you know, they're going to spend two hours with you asking you questions and looking at your stuff, all 80, 180 pounds of it. It makes me remember I was on a flight once and the guy sitting next to me had been at the same apartment as Mohammed Atta. Yeah. <laughs> he literally lived in that guy's – not while Mohammed Atta was living there, but he lived in the same apartment. I bet he got stopped. And I'm like, oh, man, that's going to haunt you for – for a long time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't really have a remedy for him on that because a lot of these systems don't uh, take enough care when it comes to dates, like the dates that somebody lives in. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Just address or address. Address is the same, but people move every five years. Right, so, but you would say, wouldn't you, that that is data. Uh, yes. It, it, you know, the fact that he lived there two years later might be significant or might not, right? Maybe the lease was handed down from terrorist to terrorist. The reality is probably not. In right. fact, it's a, it's a funny thing about big data. Like I'll be talking to big, somebody in big data from time to time. I'll say newbies in this case. They'll say, yeah, I've got all this big data and I'm going to look in it for anomalies, you know, things that are rare. Yeah. And I just look at them and go, man, in big data, things that are rare are every day. Yeah. Uh, it, things that are one in a million happen a million times a day. Right. Right. So you can't look for, I mean, if, if, or then you'll only be looking for anomalies like, uh, oh, this is the first time a redheaded person has stood on his head and typed that key. <laughs> right. And it's, the tale is so long of these uh, rare events. So it really takes collections of things. And those collections of things rarely occur on one transaction, meaning one puzzle piece. Yeah. So uh. the, the, the thing that I, that, 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 I like to, that I learned this time around, uh, is about how your mind works was what? the Tell asteroid me. problem. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I, I, where, um, it, it was not an entity resolution problem exactly, but it was taking a computationally infeasible problem and kind of quickly resolving it. Plus, you know, uh, if, uh, 
if we don't get hit by an asteroid because NASA saves us, uh, we'll all, you know, be sending checks to you. Yeah, if I save Earth, you're going to owe me. <laughs> <laughs> that problem was I was meeting with astronomer one. I, I was, I was, first I'll say I was working with the Singaporeans around maritime and figuring out which vessels are the most interesting in the Malacca Straits. Uh-huh. Half the world's oil supply, a third of the world's commodities. And in that project. And, and probably 20% of the world's pirates, if I remember right. <laughs> yeah, maybe those are actually off the tip of Africa. But, um, the, uh, one of the data points that they have is where vessels are and where they, how they move around. And I crafted something I called a space time box so you could figure out something, how long something was hanging out in the same space. Mm-hmm. And, you, you know, big spaces like 20 kilometers or tiny spaces like 610 meters. Well, the Singaporeans said, hey, that we love this. Can you add Z? I'm like, that's crazy. Elevation. Mm-hmm. I'm like, that's crazy. Ships don't float. I mean, if they're on the they bottom float, of the sea, they don't, they, they they don't, don't hover. They don't hover. <laughs> they don't fly. Uh, and, and, uh, uh, and if they're on the bottom of the sea, who cares? And, uh, you know, they said airplanes. So I, I worked with my team and crafted Z and then I, and I wanted to test it, but I didn't want to test it on anything that had to do with people. And right. it turns out asteroids have no privacy. Yes. Huh? Right. Huh? They all are potentially evil bastards exactly. and <laughs> no one's going to go, uh, 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 say we're invading their privacy. So I went and met with astronomers and they told me I had a problem. So you actually were <clears throat> trying to solve the problem of what to do with ships. And you said, why don't I look for a problem that doesn't have the privacy constraint on it and see whether I can solve that problem. Yeah. So I went and hung out at the uh, cool. uh, Institute of Astronomy in Hawaii and uh, at the University of Honolulu. And then they gave, they told me about this, uh, uh, they taught me about astronomy. I mean, mm-hmm. and I asked a bunch of dumb questions. And But along the journey, they said, now and then asteroids hit each other. But we only see them after the fact. The first time this ever happened is in 2010. Hubble was taking a deep space picture. And in right. the middle of the picture was a giant X. Because it was two asteroids that pounded into each other. Wow. And then bounced out. Yeah. And so they're like, and then they're going who knows where. They're not going where you thought they were going. Right. Now where are they going? So I asked the question. I go, well, you can, you know, these six or seven hundred thousand asteroids and you know, they don't hit Earth. You know, their orbits. Why don't you just check to see if they're going to hit each other? And then they just said to me, I don't think you understand. This is something called multibody orbit math, which means you need a lot of compute. It's an N squared problem. You'd need 10 million computer hours. And then I went, well, but. Why would you even try to solve it that way? Wouldn't this is one of those examples where it just popped into my head? I go, why wouldn't you just solve it this other way? So I I told them about this other way in about a minute, and they went that could work, and I could see it in my head. I went, of course it would work, and we delivered to them a twenty five year forward forecast of every asteroid getting close to every asteroid. And the way you did that, if I can oversimplify okay. this, yeah, and yeah. correct me, no, is you it, said, all right, we all we know where they all are in the sky, uh, uh, and. Uh, we know their orbits. And we know their orbits. And so we know uh, when two of them are within, uh, you know, uh, a, a parsec or two of each other. Uh, and so instead of looking at every orbit and every uh, asteroid, why don't we just look at the ones that are reasonably close uh, and start calculating whether they're going to bump into each other? Yeah. And the way that we did that, though, was we, we, went, we, we went to the first asteroid and we said, where are you going to be tomorrow at noon? Right. And this old ancient Fortran code that they still use, we're all going to die. Um, uh, <laughs> their ancient code comes back and goes, it's going to be right here tomorrow at noon. Like exactly right here. And then what we do is go, yeah, 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 yeah. Who cares? What zip code is that? Pretty big space time right. box. And then we say, where is that asteroid going to be the day after tomorrow at noon? And it comes back and goes, oh, 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 oh right here. And we're like, right. yeah, 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 yeah. What zip code is that? So we just went to all of these. 600 and sub, between 600, 600 and 700,000 asteroids. And we said, where are you going to be every day at noon? And it, and then we just fuzzed it up in the right. zip codes. And it turns out on any given day, there's only 2,000 asteroids in the same zip. So then we went back to those asteroids and say, where are you going to be every hour? We're going to be at 1 a.m., 2 a.m., 3 a.m., but it's a smaller number. And it turns out then the total number of asteroids, they're going to be in the same, called a street, because right. it's a smaller space time box. They're going to be on the same street on the same hour. Then you go run there. Heavy Fortran program. Right. Well, when you do that, it goes from a 10 million hour computer problem to a couple thousand hour computer problem. We gave them a 25 year forecast. And now for the first time, astronomers are able to look in space and watch two asteroids glaze each other. Very like on cool. Purpose. Yeah. 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 No, it's, yeah, it's, it's it, a fun. It was really it, a fun project. And, it, and it, I, it, 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 what, what's beautiful about it is that it's kind of counterintuitive because you're basically saying fuzzier data is better data. Fuzzier. If you fuzz things up first, it allows you to operate on the abstract. Right. And then only when you need to spend the heavy compute. And all too often I see people in my field using heavy compute for everything because they can. Right. And you could do the same thing with trying to disambiguate people. You, you say, 
I don't care whether your address is exactly the same because sometimes it'll have a suite and sometimes it won't. Sometimes it'll put Northwest on it if it's in uh, DC and sometimes it won't. Uh, so you're not looking for exact matches. You're looking for, uh, and people misspell to find candidates, to right. find candidates. Yep. And by the way, it's the same way when you put a puzzle together at home. Let's say the puzzle is 75% done. You get the next puzzle piece out of the box. It's got some red and white on it. You don't go try it on every piece. You don't go start in the top left corner and try it everywhere. You look at the puzzle and say, hey, are there any other red and white pieces? And then you just test it on those. Yeah. That process, I'll tell you too often in computer science, they go, well, you just start in the top left and you just scan it on every single one. And instead of saying which ones are even potential that have even red or white, that's kind of fuzzy. It's not perfect red and white. It's not the exact shape of red and white. It's right. just anything with red and white. I, 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 this is great. And, and I, I, I like to think that this is you saying, I can only think about this so long because I've got another Iron Man tomorrow. Uh, <laughs> and, <laughs> I, and, and there's only so much I can think about while I'm running, swimming, biking. Uh, so I have to simplify these problems down to something that, uh, that, that I can process. There's some truth to that, man. <laughs> <laughs> so you you hold a record or held a record for having run every Ironman in the world? Well, there's five of us that have done every Ironman. Yeah. Yeah, like if you go to the Ironman website, it's just got like 40 or five. And do you fall off that list when somebody invents a new Ironman? No, then we all, this whole club, the five of us, have to go and do it. Oh, so it guarantees if, if I started an Ironman, I have guaranteed five. five. You have a minimum five. The five of us show up. But I'm the only American. There's two Canadians, a Mexican, a, a German who's the newest one in the club. And then I rep- I'm representing America. Uh, I've got two this year. That's, that's uh, yeah. very cool. That's very cool. So, um, last question, uh, maybe two parts. Uh, we usually ask people what events they have coming up, uh, uh that, uh, listeners might want to participate in or, documents, reports they're issuing. But before you do that, I want to ask you a harder question. You may not uh, answer it. Uh, We've talked about things you have done. What challenges are you looking at now that you haven't talked about that that you're comfortable discussing uh, publicly? You know, if I could, uh, when I graduate from this current entity resolution work, there's a way to apply the technology that we have to some interesting problems in uh, life science and biology. Hmm. Okay. I would love yeah, which to is contribute. Full of, full of kind of compromises and good enough solutions. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> well, ultimately, not think, good enough. <laughs> I'll, give you an ex- I'll just give you a quick example. Is I, there's, it, let's say that there's a group that's working on a studying a mold that kills 30% of the world's crops. And let's right. say there's some other scientists working on a, a protein uh, that is, they think is, uh, related to Alzheimer's. They really can't find each other. Right. And I have a, a I can even, even if it's the same. One's phenomenon. maybe studying a molecule, one right. maybe studying a protein, but maybe right. they're compatible in shape and charge. Mm-hmm. And I can see a line of sight to do something around that to improve the quality of collaboration between very dissimilar groups. So basically processing massive amounts of published studies to say, are there things in here that are in, are common that you wouldn't otherwise see? So that you can connect people so yeah. that they can, uh, they can come together. A lot of innovation comes when you, when you take two very diverse things and jam them together. And I'll give you one example. I learned this from a talk Bert Rutan did. There's a kind of, uh, a termite mound in Africa and the shape of it allows it to be this roughly the same. It gives you climate control despite the huge swings uh-huh. in climate of, uh-huh. of the of day and night in Africa. When you combine, when you take those people that study those, and you put them in the same room with somebody that's studying how to make buildings and high rises uh, green and more energy efficient. Yeah, sparks fly. Yeah, so you're automating insight, innovation, um, serendipity, uh, man. Serendipity, nice. engineering, okay. serendipity. All right, I want to work on that. Uh, you know, maybe five or ten years from now, when I feel like I've 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 saved the world from its ails with regards to entity resolution. Yeah, and then and, I'm going to try and, to go. Then and the sweet meteor of death too. Uh-huh. Uh, yes, Asteroids. Okay. Uh, okay, so uh, for people who are intrigued by this uh, and want to know more, what should they do? Sensing. Okay. S-E-M-Z-I-N-G. Or email me at jeff at jeff at sensing.com. I answer every email I get from every on earth. That's amazing. It does take a little while, but it creates a lot of goodwill and I and I meet a lot of really amazing people. 
All right. So we usually give our guests uh, a uh, a mug, uh, a highly coveted uh, Cyber Law Podcast mug. I know you're not going to keep it, but uh, I'm going to provide it to you, and I hope you'll uh, uh, give it as a gift to the person least likely to, uh, to get one from me. That person is going to have it in approximately seven minutes. They, they don't know it's coming. Terrific. All right. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, Jeff Jonas, uh, it's been a pleasure. It's so much fun to see you again. Uh, and, uh, I'll have a new corset this year. Yeah, exactly. When you yeah. see me later this year on Halloween. Very cool. Okay. Uh, this has <laughs> been, uh, episode 247 of the Cyber Law Podcast, uh, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Uh, don't forget, if you've got uh, an interviewee to suggest, uh, send the suggestion to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com, and I will send you uh, a Cyberlaw Podcast mug if they come on the program. Uh, uh, occasionally, I will tweet out uh, the stories that I'm looking at, uh, so uh, watch at Stuart Baker on Twitter if you're interested in getting a preview or commenting on it and telling me stuff that uh, you're particularly interested in hearing our guests talk about. Uh, go on iTunes and Stitcher and Spotify and uh, 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 Pocket Cast to give us ratings. We really appreciate it. Write uh, uh, scathing, entertaining, uh, abusive uh, reviews. As long as you give us the, uh, the five stars, we're happy to, uh, to take the abuse and I'll even read it on the air. Um, coming up, we're going to have John Carlin, the author of Dawn of the Code Wars, uh, I, uh, the America's battle against Russia, China, and the rising global cyber threat. Uh, I'm, I've resolved to ask him only questions he hasn't been asked in the many podcast interviews that he has done. So tune in to see if I get that right. Uh, show credits, uh, Lori Paul and Christy Jorge are our producers. Jeff Kessler is our audio engineer. Michael Beaver is our intern. I'm Stuart Baker, your host. Please join us again. Uh, in episode 248 as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government. <laughs> <laughs>